Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. This week on BNN News is an evening of new beginnings, from primary elections, the start of the BPS school year, to last Friday's renewed focus on black maternal health care. We kick off in Quincy, and BNN News was there when Andrea Campbell won 50.2% of the vote to become Democratic Attorney General nominee. You said it. You hear my song? An emotional night for Andrea Campbell as she hugged her team and finally took the stage in Quincy. On Victory Road, supporters broke into applause when at 9.48 p.m., Associated Press called the AG race for Campbell. In the midst of celebration, there was an understanding that past disappointment made this moment possible. Last year, Campbell ran unsuccessfully for mayor, finishing third behind Anissa Asaibi-George and Michelle Wu. And the AG race, Campbell, through intention and a strong grassroots movement behind her, became the Democratic nominee. With her husband standing proudly by her side before a room of supporters from every stage of her public service life, Andrea Campbell was poised to break ceilings. Many of you know my story. I grew up in public housing with a family torn apart by incarceration, poverty, crime. Both of my parents died at a young age, or when I was young, they died. My twin brother, Andre, would die 10 years ago while in the custody of the Department of Correction when he was only 29 years old. While this run was personal to me, it was not for me. It was for you. It was for people and families all across Massachusetts who don't feel like government sees them or hears them, who don't feel like government is a solution or responsive to their daily struggles and concerns. I'm here to say, I see you. With our rights under assault, a mental health epidemic, an opioid crisis, housing and the cost of living are steadily going up, we must continue to fight until we actually win. That means winning in November. Together we can come together, get this done because there's too much at stake. Over in the South End, there was more celebration as Kevin Hayden became the next district attorney of Suffolk County. It was a hard-earned win for interim Suffolk District Attorney Kevin Hayden and his campaign, who celebrated late into Tuesday night in the South End. Warm hugs and smiles were in abundance. Hayden overcame Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo in the primary election polls with 54% of the vote after a tense few days of serious character accusations from both sides. However, all tensions seemed to melt away as Hayden and supporters savored his victory. With no challenging Republican candidate, Caden will be elected the new district attorney of Suffolk County. I knew he was the right man for the right time at this particular moment. He is the steady hand that we need. He is the character. He has the voice. He has the ears. He has the heart. He has all of that is necessary to lead us in this turbulent time. He is the leader we need. And I've made it clear from the very beginning that we were going to engage and collaborate and work with all Suffolk County communities like never before. And I promise you that that's what we'll do. We're going to work with our Boston First program to attack guns on our streets, unsolved shootings, trafficking, the guns that are going into our young people's hands 
must stop, and we're going to do everything we can to do just that. We will continue in bigger and better ways to help our communities that are suffering from the opioid epidemic, those who need real care and real treatment and real alternatives to prosecution, real alternatives to prosecution, we will deliver that. We won't stand up for white supremacy. We won't stand up for hate crimes. That's why we started a civil rights division within our office to address those issues. Boston is too strong too loving and too powerful to not to be able to stand up against hate. We won't tolerate it. We turn now to education, where students, parents, and teachers were all excited for the first day of school on Thursday. Yesterday was the first day of school for BPS students, and the only person more excited than returning youth may be Mattahunt Elementary School Principal Walter Henderson. Students entered the Mattapan School in single file to the applause of teachers ready to impart knowledge and extend their hearts. It's been a trying two years of social distancing, remote learning, and precaution. This year, the first day back in classrooms is a welcoming sight for students, teachers, and parents. Honestly, I feel a lot more normal too from the last two years. I feel very good going into the school year for her and the rest of my kids. So it'll be great. You can see there's a buzz in the air. Um, the children want to be here. The parents want to be here. The teachers are here early. Some teachers were here at 5.30, 5.45 a.m., just raring to go. Um, teachers came in early over the summer to prep their classrooms and to prep the hallways. So we're, the matter hunt is ready to go. We definitely know that the pandemic had a lot of impacts on our students. It's not just about the academics, it's also about their social emotional health. So many of our students also lost loved ones, uh, parents, caregivers, and also had so much disruption from the lack of structure from not being able to be in school the last couple of years that we really have to think about the extra supports, not just for the academics, but also for the students' social emotional wellness as well. We take a harder look at education and those who are falling through the cracks. According to School Facts Boston, the BPS class of 2021 four-year graduation rate was 78.8%. So where are the nearly 20% of students who did not graduate? Angie Encarnacion, re-engagement manager at Boston Private Industry Council, is knocking on doors to find out. Angie Encarnacion spent her Wednesday morning canvassing the neighborhoods of J.P. Dorchester in Roxbury. Her goal was simple, to recover BPS students who have dropped out or have been chronically absent from school. In Boston, the high school dropout rate is currently 2%. Yet that number is still too high when a high school education is a crucial step for building future careers and lives. Whatever the reason students are not in school, BPS is committed to offering the necessary support to welcome them back. There's a lot of reasons why students drop out. Um, for some it's personal, for some it's academic. Um, some students are sick, their parents are sick. So there's a lot of reasons why students actually leave school. And a lot of students who are out of school don't even consider themselves dropouts. They just feel like they're taking a break and they're going to get back to it. Um, but sometimes life happens and that doesn't happen. So it's just really important that we have these individual conversations so that we can learn why students left school personally and what we can do to help them get back into school. 
I think it's really important for students to know that people care about them um, and to feel valued in their community. I remember when I was a high school student, when I was a teenager, really having those connections with adults was what made a huge difference in my life and I really hope to be that for some students here in Boston. It's so essential to get these kids back into school because during the pandemic a lot of them stopped going because they had to do other different things like babysit their siblings and help parents who were still working um, and I think during this time a lot of students you know have lost what it's like to be in a social setting with other students so it's time to bring them back in and understand how important finishing their education is. Switching gears to health. For black women, the racial disparity in maternal health care has been a long-known and overlooked issue. Last Friday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley brought focus to the inequities costing black women their lives. At Codman Square Health Center, Presley hosted U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Piquera, along with local health providers and advocates for an urgent roundtable discussion. A sobering statistic, black women are three to four times more likely to die from childbirth complications than white women. And that's just the beginning. Black women must fight to have their pain and health concerns taken seriously by physicians, which delays necessary care. The recent overturning of Roe v. Wade strips another avenue of health care access from women of color, a topic of discussion at Friday's convening. Once it was officially rolled back, I was just filled with immediate dread uh, about the fact that my daughter would be growing up uh, in a country where she had fewer rights uh, than I grew up with. And um, I recall some of the uh, young women in my district expressing that in the immediate hours, they felt uh, great outrage, but they had sort of acquiesced to a detached acceptance. And I found that incredibly frightening. What we've heard from a lot of women, especially black women, is that when they present with a problem or with pain during pregnancy, too often, unfortunately, medical professionals don't believe them. Mm -hmm. And the result is that they get inferior care and oftentimes care that comes too late. Black mothers and babies have always been at higher risk of complications and death during and after pregnancy. And over time, with advancements in technology and science and medical methods, those inequities have only widened because we have not actually fixed that system of race-based oppression. Um, we see that black mothers, even when they are highly educated, they earn a high income, they have no medical comorbidities, are still at higher risk of complications and death during and after pregnancy. This is not because of something inherently wrong with black bodies or with the way black people live their lives. It has to do with the way they are treated in our society in general and in the healthcare system. And now we take you to BNN News Interviews. Derek Young Jr. is a champion for social justice and equity. He's the co-founder and executive director of Leadership Brainery, a nonprofit organization addressing unequal access to advanced education and workforce leadership opportunities for minoritized communities. Jalen Caraballo amplifies Leadership Brainery's mission, programs, and impact through advocacy, storytelling, and content creation as communication and development specialist. I had the pleasure of learning the beginnings of Leadership Brainery and their upcoming graduate school summit this October. Here's the interview. So the mission of Leadership Brainery is to increase access to master's and doctoral degrees um, for underrepresented communities as a pathway 
to management and leadership roles in the workforce. Um, and we really see this as an essential pathway because when we do get more access to management and leadership roles in the workforce, it also increases the chances for higher wages and higher impact, which we know that our communities, those with their backs up against the wall, people of color, LGBTQ, low income talent, um, need access um, to close wealth and opportunity gaps. And so Leadership Brainer was started through um, the lived experiences of myself and my partner partner, going to graduate school, being one of the very few people of color um, in our programs, and really not having um, the community of support, not having the familiarity with um, our institutions to support us accurately. Um, and so we created an organization that really ensured that talent from diverse backgrounds um, are compared to be competitive applicants for schools, um, but then also working with the schools to ensure that they are creating more equitable pathways to admissions um, and retention um, within their institutions. I love that. And can you tell me more about the individuals that you serve and the programs offered at Leadership Brainery? Of course. So at Leadership Brainery, we serve underrepresented undergraduates, underrepresented graduate students. So underrepresented for us is people of color, people who are LGBTQ+, low income, first generation. And we have multiple different programs that we offer. So first we have the Graduate School Summit, which is an annual event that takes place. It is intentionally designed to ensure success in the application process. So that's the graduate, graduate school application process. Then we also have Dear Future Colleague, which is meant for community mentorship and information. So there you're able to commune with other individuals who are interested in graduate school or are already in graduate school. You're able to find mentorship where you can enter into a three-month mentorship program with a mentor of your choosing who is a part of an affinity group that you are also a part of. So that could be either your race, your gender, whether you're a part of a military family, anything that really speaks to you and would help you throughout your process and apply or in, you know, getting into graduate school. Uh, and then you can also find information on that platform as well, where you're able to see all of our partner schools and the amazing programs that they offer. I think the number is currently at 700 plus. And then you're also able to see all the information on when you're able to apply, how to apply, and the materials that are needed to apply. Um, and then we also have our amazing clubhouse, which is where I am currently. Um, and our clubhouse is located on Beacon Street in Back Bay. And here for the students who are able to get into um, our partner schools, they have free access to the, grad, uh, to the um, clubhouse. And here, what you're able to do is co-work. It's a co-working space. You're able to come and have snacks, able to spend time and do your work, whether or not you're comfortable on your campus, you're able to come here and find space and community and do what you need to in order to be successful in graduate school. Although African-Americans, we compose 13% uh, of the U.S. population, fewer than 6% are enrolled in master's and doctorate programs. And when we even look at leadership such as CEOs, about 3% are actually African-American. Uh, what is causing this disconnect and what are some of the tangible effects of not having people of color in positions of power? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I'll uh, bluntly start off by saying we live in a racist society. Um, and for so long, when we go all the way back into our history, we have seen um, that people of color have their backs up against the wall when it comes to access, um, when it comes to opportunity. And so education and higher education um, at that, when we look at the trends over the last 40 years, we've seen that college costs have skyrocketed. 
Um, but however, the average income for black families have not increased in over 40 years. Um, and so if the graduate degree um, cost $10,000 in the 90s, opposed to $100,000 plus now, hmm. um, just 20 years later, um, we're going to see a huge divide in terms of who can still access um, this level of education. We had more um, black men in medical school in 1973 um, than we had in 2019. That is a huge issue and no one's talking about that only because everybody feels like, well, as the years go, society has to be progressing on an equitable front, but that is not the case. Um, when we look at inflation um, in our numbers, things are getting much more expensive and our communities are being pushed out um, from some of the opportunities that our ancestors worked really hard for um, for generations. Mm. And Jalen, you, you spoke to us a little bit previously about the Graduate School Summit, which is right on the horizon, taking place October 11th through the 14th. Uh, can you tell us even more about this event and what participants will, will gain from the experience? Like I said previously, it is completely intentionally designed to ensure success in the application process. So what this means is when applicants are come, when um, those who are accepted are able to come to the Graduate School Summit, they'll have access to workshops that are meant to help them create their applications for graduate school and then be confident in sending them in. So that looks like having a workshop that is completely surrounded around um, all of the different elements of the actual application process, whether that's your personal statement, what is an addendum, how do you write an addendum, and really creating those key pieces that make or break an application. And then not all those workshops, we also have our industry professionals who will be coming, and they're able to then have uh, real-time access to other people who are in those fields that they're interested in being in after their graduate school, after they're done with graduate school, and fields that they're like, interested in having internships with. They're able to really meet with those professionals. And then we also have all of our amazing, we currently have 15 top schools that are coming to the graduate school um, summit, and they've already signed on to be there. Awesome. So if you're interested in applying, for anyone who's interested in applying, they can go to leadershipbrainery.org backslash GSS 2022, and there you'll be able to see the 15 amazing schools who are going to be there. You'll able you'll be able to see all of the ways in which um, we're creating this and designing it specifically for underrepresented students, and all of these will be done. Um, depending on industry. So the first day is going to be for STEM and health. So everyone who's interested in getting into that field for graduate school and beyond, the first day is STEM and health. The second day will be arts and humanities. Uh, third day will then be law and policy. And the last day, the fourth day will be uh, business and finance. So we have every single industry represented and we will be making sure that underrepresented students not only have the access to apply to graduate school, but they know how to. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, and for people who are interested in learning more, possibly becoming a partner school, where can they go to get more information? Leadershipbrainery.org. You can type in the URL or you can Google us or you can find us on social media at Leadership Brainery. Um, we have a lot of opportunities for um, everyone to get involved um, in our mission um, and we need your support. 
Finally, we end tonight's interviews with Sheena Collier, a super connector, convener, and planner with over 15 years of experience in community organizing, partnership building, strategic event planning, and program development. As founder and CEO of the Collier Connection, she designs innovative diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and events to help companies engage employees, customers, and suppliers of color. In 2020, Sheena founded Boston Wild Black, the first membership network for Boston-based black professionals, entrepreneurs, and students who are seeking connection and community. I had the chance to sit down with Sheena about how she's building a tribe in Boston. Check out our conversation. So Boston Wild Black is a, a phrase, a tagline, it's a movement. Um, it's kind of a statement, you know, a bold statement, and it's also a community that has been built over the last two years. So we are a digital and in-person membership network for Black professional students and entrepreneurs who are seeking connection in this region. You're a Boston transplant, originally from New York. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Boston that existed when you came here first as a student at Harvard Graduate School of Education. How is Boston different now? And how is Boston while Black uh, building Black infrastructure in the city? It's definitely changed since I came. Um, I'm obviously a little biased. I'm so deep in it now, so my perspective is different. And What's great around Boston Wild Black is I it gives me a um, pathway to continue to meet new people as they move here. So I keep hearing people's stories because, frankly, at this point, my I have you know as we say in Boston Wild Black created the city I want to live in. So you know my experience is is definitely different than people that are coming here today. But I do think that this conversation about the livability of Boston for people of color and then specifically for Black people is something that is um, literally be talk being talked about everywhere. Mm. And so because of that, there are much more efforts like Boston Wild Black and in, in that others are leading and you know efforts that people were leading way before Boston Wild Black that I think are being elevated more and getting more attention. Um, you hear it talked about in the mayoral races that was happening, you know, people were talking about it. Um, so there's an understanding, I think, more of an understanding of the economic competitive competitiveness of this region depends on black people um, and people of color wanting to make this home. And I, you know, I think that again, I both have a different perspective because I'm deeper in that work now, but I do also think that it's it's a conversation that's happening much more around the city. For us in particular, for Boston on Black, the way we're contributing to it is one, you know, raising the conversation. So even before Boston Black launched as a membership and, and even since, you know, I speak a lot of places just about the um, need for Boston to be a place where Black people can see themselves thriving and, and really um, personally, professionally, socially getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. So we're helping to just even drive the conversation when the, when the mayor, this most recent mayoral race happened, we hosted one of the last mayoral forums with Councillor Sabi George and now Mayor Wu. And it was all focused around Black experiences, community culture in the city. And so one, we're just helping to, to make sure the conversation is, is at, happening at a city level, state level. And then we have our actual membership where we now have almost a thousand members. And we have people who are, you know, ambassadors of Boston Wild Black 
um, who live all over the state, um, even some people that live outside of Boston, but may have ties to Boston, who are joining in with us in creating this community that, um, you know, people can continue to join. Um, we partner with 19 corporations around the city to provide it as a perk for their Black employees, our customers. Mm. And we host these large-scale public events that extend us even beyond who we can serve as a member. So we have our How to Boss Small Black Summit. We have our BWB Family Reunion um, that both have happened earlier this year. And, you know, just even between those two events have served upwards of 9,000 people. So Wow. Yeah. So we're just, you know, that's why I started off saying it's, it is a company and it's a membership, but really it's a movement to raise the visibility of Black people in Boston, as well as help to create, you know, what hasn't existed here. One of Boston Wild Black's mantras is find your tribe. And it really stood out to me as a, as a homing beacon of sorts. Uh, many Black professionals, they share the experience of being the only one in a lot of the settings that they find themselves, be it the workspace or higher education. Um, can you talk a little bit about the events and programs Boston Wild Black has that cultivates this tribe? You know, at a large scale, the membership itself is that is an opportunity for you to um, whatever corporate spaces, nonprofit spaces you're in, whatever neighborhood you live in, kind of have this community of people who are um, look like you, whatever that means. Because we know Black people comes in all um, different shapes, sizes, colors, backgrounds. You know, we really use the language of people who identify as Black. Um, because we know that Black is very expansive. And so, you know, at a minimum, joining the membership is, you know, a step towards finding your tribe. But then, you know, we're different. We often use and hear the phrase of Black people not being a monolith. And so we created within the membership, these clubs, member-led clubs, which are really interest groups for people to really find their tribe. So we have a blurred club for Black nerds. We have a club for people who are aspiring or expert photographers. We have a space for people that want to have conversations and maybe talk about investing together. Um, and there's really a range. We have a music lover's lounge where, where people um, review albums, but also find buddies to go to concerts with. And so there's really um, about a dozen of them. And there's a way for people to, to further find their tribe, um, not assuming that, you know, just being Black is, is, you know, that's kind of the common denominator, but, you know, yeah. what, what else um, is connecting you with people? Um, and then we do a number of different events um, throughout the month that gives people opportunities, access to, to information, to um, influencers, to opportunities and resources around the city, so that even outside of Boston Wild Black, you know, Boston Wild Black is really like a hub for them. You want to, you know, it to be like your home base. And then it helps to connect you to all the other things that are going on in the city because there's amazing resources and opportunities outside of what Boston Wild Black can offer. And so we just really use this as a way for people to get um, connected to those other things that the city has to offer. For people interested in learning more or becoming a member or possibly corporate partner, how can they do so? BostonWildBlack.com, you can find everything, particularly um, ways to join our tribe, either as 
a member and same for partnership. You can find information online that sends us a message to let us know that you want to become a partner. We're looking to partner with, with everyone um, and particularly, you know, the, the, the growing industries, higher ed, tech, um, life sciences, you know, health that we know are the major employers in Boston. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, formerly RCN 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon. I'll see you next Friday for BNN News This Week.